0: A little Ohio Mysteries business before we get started tonight. I am happy to announce that we have launched a phone number if you'd like to call and leave us a feedback on our episode, suggest another mystery, or just in general, tell us what a great job we are doing. It is 234-738-0966. Again, that is 234-738-0966. We are looking forward to hearing from you. And now... On with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is our 10 minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host Steve Yoder and with me is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss.
1: Hi everyone. Our story today takes place west of Toledo in a small town called Swanton, Ohio, home to fewer than 4,000 people and straddling the border of Lucas and Fulton counties. We're going back to 1985, just before Halloween. Lori Ann Hill was a 14-year-old, brand new freshman at Swanton High School. She lived just outside of town with her parents, Dottie and Roger Hill, and her sister, Rachel. Lori was a tall girl, inches at the age of 14. And she had shoulder length, blonde hair, blue eyes, and an ever-present smile that revealed braces. Lori loved horses and wanted to raise them, but she was also very much interested in working with the blind and deaf community. Dreams that Lori is never going to realize. It was October 25, and Lori had a busy social night planned. At 6.30 p.m., she was picked up at home by her boyfriend, Craig Rupp. They had been seeing each other for about a month. Now, news reports put Craig's age at 16 and at 18. I'm I'm not sure which is the case. But the couple ate dinner at McDonald's, attended the Friday night football game for the Swanton High School Bulldogs, then went to an after-game Halloween party in town. Lori and Craig arrived at the party around 9 p.m., but promptly got into an argument that had Lori leaving the party on her own Less than a half hour later, a friend of Lori's named Steve saw her walking and offered to give her a ride. He dropped her off at Mr. G's Pizza Parlor on Main Street in downtown Swanton. At Mr. G's, she made two phone calls, to whom police will never learn. Then Lori talked to another friend, Rhonda, outside Mr. G's. Lori told Rhonda she was waiting for a friend. And then at about 10 PM, Lori started walking, presumably toward home, which was seven miles away. A neighbor of Lori's spotted her walking northbound on Hallett Avenue across the bridge that ran over the Ohio Turnpike. The woman named Deborah stopped and asked Lori if she wanted a ride, but Lori declined. It was the last confirmed time anyone saw Lori, but there was one other possible sighting. Around 10.30 p.m., Ron and Joan Bettinger, neighbors of the Hill family, were driving home from the football game when they came across three figures they assumed were teenagers, walking northbound on State Route 295. That was just 100 yards from Lori's home. The teens were walking in the middle of the road, so the Benningers had to slow down as they approached them. In the middle of the trio was a tall girl with shoulder-length hair. The teens turned as the car neared them, then stepped aside to let the car pass. The Beningers knew Lori. She had been to their house a few times and knew their son, but it wasn't until the next day, afterward of Lori's disappearance, that the Benningers called police Confident, in hindsight, that the tall girl was Lori. The girl they saw was wearing blue jeans, a white shirt, and a blue jeans jacket, which described what police reports said Lori was wearing. Whether that was Lori or not, she never made it home. As midnight came and went, the hills grew worried fast. Lori was reliable and always on time. It didn't take long for them to begin fearing for her well being. Dotty Hill started making phone calls while her husband Roger and Lori's sister Rachel started driving around. They first headed straight for the house where the Halloween party was, but Rachel struck out finding anybody who had seen them there. At two AM, Lori's parents called police. Lori's family and police worked to put a timeline together of the evening's events. And as word of her disappearance circulated, tips and witnesses came in, but still no Lori. They searched on Saturday, on Sunday, on Monday. Her sister Rachel took a step I hadn't heard before. She started calling every area radio station and they allowed her to share an on air plea. Lori, if you can hear us, call us. Then. On Tuesday, Swanton Police Chief Bates arrived at the Hill house. He didn't have to say anything. Dottie Hill began crying as soon as she saw him. Then he said simply, she's gone. And Mrs. Hill began to scream. Lori's body had been found by a deer hunter in a brushy field along Road M between State Routes 12 and 13 in the Fulton County village of Wauseon. So both Fulton and Lucas County Sheriff Departments launched their own separate investigations. Lori had been stripped, but for a single sock. Her jean jacket was nearby. She had been beaten badly and killed by crushing blows to her head. At autopsy, A rape kit was collected, including blood, hair, and semen samples. The FBI and the BCI tested the kit, after which it was returned to the Fulton County Sheriff, put in a property room, and forgotten for the next 20 years. As time went on, police cleared everyone known to have seen Lori that night, including her boyfriend Craig and Steve, the guy who gave her the ride to the pizza shop, They also interviewed Lori's last boyfriend, Walt Zimbeck, was 18 years old. He worked as a busboy at the El Matador restaurant on Airport Highway. He lived in Holland, that's another Lucas County village, with his mom and stepfather. He and Lori had been together for a year and a half before she decided she wanted to date Craig. Zimbeck told police he hadn't seen her for a couple of weeks but that they still talked on the phone almost daily. But Zimbeck had an alibi. He had been at Southwick Mall with three other boys, Ken, Mark, and Denny. Denny had just returned from Texas, so Zimbeck took the night off work to spend the night with his pals. Four days later, Zimbeck altered his story a little bit. He said while at the mall, he met a girl named Sandy who gave him a ride home. Zimbeck himself didn't have a working car and she stayed at his house until 2am. He also added that while Lori was dating Craig, she and Zimbeck had discussed getting back together and that Lori said she intended to break up with Craig. Anyway, Zimbeck was given a polygraph and he passed. Within months of Lori's death, a very disturbing theory emerged. Lucas County investigators received information that the murder may have been committed at an abandoned clubhouse that belonged to a motorcycle gang called the Iron Coffins. Deputies went to the clubhouse, took photographs, seized physical evidence, including women's panties and a mattress with bloodstains confirmed to be human after it and other items were sent for testing to the FBI lab. But no written inventory of what they seized was ever made, and only two photos taken of the clubhouse survived the years. And just as the Fulton sheriff shelved and forgot that rape kit, the Lucas sheriff shelved and forgot the clubhouse evidence. 23 years passed in 2008 lori's sister rachel decided to call the toledo police department she heard they had a task force of detectives who were attempting to solve cold cases and the fulton county sheriff's office agreed to turn over the files and evidence in the Ann hill case to toledo That's when Detective Steve Forster began reviewing the old interviews and became disturbed by the fact that back in 1985, Walt Zimbeck had given conflicting stories about what he was doing that night. To add to his growing suspicions, he called to talk to Zimbeck's mother, Carol, and she told yet a different story. She said Lori called the house three times that night looking for her son and that she was very angry the third time she called. She did remember Zimbeck, her son, had come home with a girl that night, but also added that in the early morning hours, she told Zimbeck Lori had called, which caused him to leave the house to go look for her. And so the Toledo Cold Case Unit traveled to where Zimbeck was now living in Tennessee and questioned him. He admitted he had lied to both the Lucas County and Fulton County authorities in that first interview back in 1985, but he didn't remember exactly why. Whatever he said, the physical evidence pointed away from him. The cold case had a pubic hair that was collected in that 1985 rape kit tested for DNA. And while it tested male, it was not Zimbeck's. Still, even without physical evidence and only those conflicting stories from 1985, the prosecutor had Walt Zimbeck indicted for the aggravated murder on July 20, 2009. Zimbeck's defense attorney brought up the old theory about that motorcycle gang, and it was pretty stunning. During Zimbeck's trial, a man named Richard Easterwood gave testimony that his first cousin, Ron Hanick, ran with the Iron Coffins Motorcycle Club and had told him about being present at the murder. He said he was told, and here's a quote, they ended up taking the little girl to a trailer and there was a gang rape and he was really pissed off because he told me that Billy Little put a jack handle through her head. Well, that testimony was especially interesting because it had never been made public that the coroner thought the item used to beat Lori Ann Hill to death was an iron tool like a pry bar, a crowbar or a pipe. But nobody could ask Billy Little about it. He was already dead, as were two other suspects named as being at the killing. No doubt, the story of the motorcycle gang contributed to the fact that the jury couldn't decide the case. Zimbeck was acquitted of charges after the jury was hung, and the prosecutor decided not to try again. By now, though, Lori's sister, Rachel, was so convinced of Zimbeck's guilt, she met him face to face on the Dr. Phil television show. Zimbeck had been the best man at her own wedding two years after Lori's murder. And she was absolutely now convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was the one who had raped and beaten her sister to death. He meanwhile continued to insist he had nothing to do with it. And a few years later, in 2017, Rachel Hill apparently started to believe that he didn't because now she was equally convinced of a new suspect. In Fulton County, a 57-year-old man named James Worley was arrested for the kidnapping and murder of a 20-year-old University of Toledo business student named Sierra Jogin. In 2016, Worley was living in the Fulton County village of Delta and that July, he snatched Sierra as she was riding her purple bicycle down a country road about five miles from his home. After he killed her, he left her body in a field alongside a country road. And here's another thing. It wasn't his first time trying to do that in 1990, 16 years earlier, he was convicted in another incident involving a woman on a bike. In that case, he used his truck to tap her bike from behind, knocking her to the ground. Then he hit her on the head and dragged her to his truck where he pulled a pair of handcuffs from his glove box. Fortunately, she was able to fight him off and she escaped. He served only three years in that case and was released. When they arrested Worley for the murder of Sierra, they searched a barn on his property and discovered a hidden room where they found several pairs of women's underwear on one of which blood was found, restraints, and a carpet-lined freezer stained with blood. So what did all of this have to do with Lori Ann Hill way back in 1985? Turns out the Hills knew James Worley back then. He was in his early 20s back in 85 and lived in an apartment Rachel and Lori would have passed many times. As a matter of fact, Rachel said, Just six months after Lori's death, she had gone to his apartment with a couple of friends, and she never forgot how oddly he acted, how he wouldn't speak to her or look at her and simply pace the floor while they were there. At Worley's arraignment for the murder of Sierra Joggin, Rachel was there. She came away convinced she had just seen her sister's killer and told a reporter that the man oozed evil. A reporter with WTOL Channel 11 went on to do a little digging and put together a list of seven females, all unsolved homicides, whose bodies were found within a few miles of where Worley lived or worked since the 1980s. Let me give you this abbreviated list. In 1980, 30-year-old Bobby Lee Wells was beaten with a hammer and found on County Road F, a few miles from Worley's home. In 1981, 19-year-old Michelle Hoffman was found in Millbury Park near where Worley worked at the time. In 1982, 17-year-old Sharon Ward was found dead in a cornfield in Oregon, Ohio. That same year, -year 32-year-old Karen Lee Coles went missing near the Fulton County-Lucas County border. She has yet to be found. In 1983, 27-year-old Joanne Josso was found wearing only her tennis shoes off a county road in Wasion. Lori Ann Hill, of course, was killed in 1985 and found not far from where Sierra Jorgen's body was found. And in 1995, 19-year-old Tabitha Ann Guth was found wearing only tennis shoes west of Toledo. In the case of Sierra Jorgen, Worley was found guilty and sentenced to death. He is in the middle of the appeals process right now. He has never been charged in Lori Ann Hill's death, though investigators have certainly eyed him. Given the setup on his property and comments he made in interviews, they suspect he may at least be a serial assaulter, if not a serial killer. A couple of years ago, Rachel was really pushing hard for her sister's body to be exhumed and more modern DNA tests to be done. I couldn't find any news reports that such a thing has yet been done. The last thing I found written was in 2018 when authorities agreed Worley did fit the profile of a serial killer but wouldn't comment on whether he was being investigated
0: in any other cases. I think they're waiting until these with this appeal process when those end he might start singing trying to get you know that death sense to be pushed back more.
1: You might be right and I hope he does start singing because there are more bodies attached to this guy. He doesn't have that kind of setup in his barn and he only had one woman there.
0: Right. Reminds me of the toy box killer that guy who had a you know a whole setup in a in a separate area from his house, and it was just horrific in there. So obviously this guy was doing more than just kidnapping girls. All right, well, that's it for our midweek 10-minute mystery. We'll see you here Sunday for our next regular full-size Ohio mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week, and may all of your mysteries have happy endings. Ohio Mysteries is produced by Steven Yoder and Paula Schleiss. Special thanks to our Patreon and PayPal supporters. Thank you, Audionautics, Daniel Birch, and Adderan for the music. And of course, to all of you who support our show by listening and telling friends and family about us. You can find us on Twitter at Mysteries Ohio. You can find us on Facebook by just searching for Ohio Mysteries. We are also on Instagram at Ohio Mysteries.